0: from Luke 19 verses 28 to 44 and when he had said these things he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Beth- and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet he sent two of the disciples saying go into the village in front of you around entering you'll find a coat tied, uh, which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If, any, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, his owners said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, we your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if this were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you,
1: Thanks for reading the word for us, Angeline. Uh, come, as we come to the word, let us pray together again. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to receive the word. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you are speaking God. So, Father, we pray that you would quieten us as we come to you, help us to hear you. Uh, we pray that you would grant us humility before you, the, that our hearts would be laid bare, that we would come to you with trust and obedience, even as we hear the good news about Your Son, how He comes for us and for our salvation. We pray this in His name. Amen. So today is a Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, so we, we join with countless others across time and space to remember the final week of Jesus' earthly life. You know, today on Good Friday... Today, on Good Friday as well as on Easter Sunday, we'll take a short break from our regular sermon series in the book of Romans to look at just three passages from the Gospel of Luke. Holy Week is also known uh, as Passion Week. Uh, You know, the meaning of passion in Passion Week is is quite different from how we normally use the word passion. You know, we normally take passion to mean uh, like a strong emotion or desire. But the the word "passion" in Passion Week is taken from the Latin word uh, "passio," which means uh, suffering. Right, so Suffering Week. Uh, So Passion Week marks the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. That's what Passion Week commemorates. So why do we commemorate Passion Week? Many of us, uh, if we've been in churches long enough, we're familiar with Good Friday and Easter. There's a danger of taking God's grace for granted. You know, year by year, Good Friday and Easter come around, they come and go, uh, but, but our, it's easy for our hearts to remain unmoved by the, the wonderful gospel that Good Friday and Easter point to. So in, in marking Passion Week, our goal is to really obey Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You know, the author to the Hebrews exhorts us, right? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the passion, endured the suffering, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so as we enter into Passion Week, we, we really want to do just one thing. We want to look to Jesus and to consider whether our eyes have been diverted from Him, whether in the busyness of life have we been distracted from following Jesus as we should. You know, Passion Week is a good time to do a spiritual health check. You know, we, we do those regularly, don't we? You know, especially the older we get, the more important it is to do regular health checks, you know, regular medicals why not a spiritual health check to see how our hearts are really doing, to see if we are still looking to Jesus in the midst of our busy lives, in the midst of our families, in the midst of our busy jobs? Is is Christ still our focus? Are we still trusting Him? Are we still obeying Him? Are we still growing to become more and more like Him? So in your ministry guide, I've, I've left a little reading guide for us for this week, some suggested Bible passages that we may want to read over the course of this week from Monday to uh, next Sunday, just some passages in the Gospel of Luke to help us to look to Jesus. So as we read these passages, we're thinking about how, you know, how, how God is revealing Christ, His Son, to us. We're thinking about, do we, do we know Him? Are we following Him? Do our lives look like His? You know, in, in the book of Acts, the, you, you may find it interesting, what, what's the most common term in the book of Acts to describe Christians or Christianity? Let me think about it for a moment. You know, what, what's the most common term to describe Christians or Christianity? It's actually not the word Christian, you know, that, that comes quite late in the book of Acts. Uh, the most common term is this phrase called the way, the way. Uh, Christians were known as those who belong to the way. You know, I I think this is because Jesus calls Himself the the way, the truth, and the life. But but I think there's something about that description, the way, that helps us to think about what it means to be a Christian, right? The the way is not something that you just know intellectually, right? The, The way is something that you walk in, right? That's why you call it the way, right? It's not just a set of of doctrines or beliefs that we agree kind of intellectually, saying, yeah, these things are true, I, I believe them intellectually. But but rather, by calling it the way, the book of Acts is trying to remind us that this is something that you live out. You, you walk in the way of Jesus because He is the way. Right? It's a bit like going to NS, right? So, so I don't know whether some of you had the chance to see, uh, to, to, to see Caleb Lee before he enlisted. Right, you know, he, he, he's all in, right? So before he enlisted, what did Caleb do? He shaved off all his hair, right? So he was walking around without, without his nice uh, mop of hair because he had cut it all off, getting ready for NS. And when, when he starts on NS, what do you do? He, he's in there full time, right? It, it's a way of life. His way of life has completely changed from civilian to uh, sort of apinka, right? Like military life. He's, he's doing that full time. Right? He, he's walking in the way of being a national serviceman you know he can't choose to do it or I, I just want to do it part time or I just want to know certain things about being a soldier, but I don't really want to do it uh, myself. No, he doesn't have a choice. he's doing it full time and he's all in right down to a change of hairstyle right that that's what it means to follow Jesus on the way right? It's not something that we do part time once one day a week, but uh, but following Jesus begins to change our way of life. It, it changes who we are. It changes how we live because we're walking along the way. So we, we pattern every part of our lives according to the pattern of Jesus. Right? Our, our relationships, you know, we talked about our marriages, our parenting, our work life, our church life, every aspect of our life is walked along means we're walking along the way together with Christ. Are we still on the way? Right? Are we still walking along the way? Are we indifferent to the way? Are we drifting away from the way? Right? How are we walking day by day? You know, Almost half of the Gospel of Luke has to do with the way. Right? If you read the Gospel of Luke, you know, chapters 9, to 19, which is where we are today, uh, really traces Jesus' journey along the way. This this journey begins in chapter nine, verse 51, where Jesus says, "When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to walk along the way towards Jerusalem." And in our passage, Jesus' journey is almost over. He's preparing to enter Jerusalem, where he will complete his earthly mission. And so, Jesus, uh, so Luke writes these verses to show us who King Jesus is and, and how He's walking along the way and, and how we also should follow Him along this same way. So just four things to think about as, as we consider Christ this morning. Number one, Jesus is the King who fulfills God's promises. Right? In our text, the scene opens in verse 28. With Jesus approaching Jerusalem, you know, he draws near to uh, Bethany and Bethany, two villages on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So, if you look at the map, the, the the big you know that that place marker there is the Mount of Olives. So, the Mount of Olives is very near to Jerusalem, directly east of the city. I think those of you who've been to uh, Israel. Now, I've only seen photographs of this, I've never been to Israel myself, but you know, if you Google Mount of Olives, there's some photographs of the Mount of Olives, but uh, you can stand on the Mount of Olives and, and see the temple uh, on the mount. Right? You can see the walls of Jerusalem, you can see the, 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 the temple mount of Jerusalem. That, that's how close the Mount of Olives is to the city. So Jesus was planning to come to Jerusalem from the east, you know, to, to descend the Mount of Olives, walk through the Kidron Valley, which is what separates Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is on the a, on a Mount as well. He walks through the Kidron Valley and enters Jerusalem from the east. That, that's, that's where we are geographically. Now, if you, if you compare Luke's account to the other gospel accounts, you realize one, one significant detail. Luke is the only gospel account that mentions the Mount of Olives. Now, the other gospel writers don't do that. You know, why, why does Luke mention the mount of olives by name. It, you know, in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 11, you know, he described how the glory of the Lord departed from the temple because of Judah's sin. You know, listen listen to Ezekiel 11 verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, probably referring to the Mount of Olives or at least the vicinity of the Mount of Olives. If you you know the context of Ezekiel, the the departing glory of God was a sign of God's judgment on Israel, right? uh, God's patience had come to an end. He, He had enough of His people's sin that they repeated sin and idolatry against Him. So He was withdrawing His presence, right? He was, he was withdrawing His glory and handing Judah over to judgment and exile. That's a sign of Him leaving the city. You know, why would God do that? It's because God is perfectly holy and righteous, and, and sin separates us from Him. Now, as we've seen from Romans so far in our earlier sermons, we face God's judgment and wrath because we have rebelled against Him. And what does it mean to rebel against God? It simply means that we don't cherish His glory. You know, we don't cherish His presence. Uh, we'd rather Him not be around, basically. You know, we we want to kind of live our own lives our way, so you know, His presence kind of a bit inconvenient. You know, it gets in the way of my plans, gets in the way of my, uh, my, my hopes for myself, my goals, my desires, what, what I want to do for myself. So, so we, we kind of hold God's glory really lightly. You know, we'd rather not Him be around. And God gives us what we want, right? He, he, he withdraws His presence just as He did in Judah. So instead of cherishing His glory, we have dishonoured God. Instead of walking along His way, you know, we walk along our own ways. And so God leaves, but, but thankfully, the Old Testament doesn't end uh, with, with just a promise of judgment. Right? Uh, the Old Testament prophets, they, they look beyond what, what happened with Judah and the departure of God's glory. They look, they look forward to when the Lord will return. Uh, they, they were hoping in the, this glory coming back, God's presence coming back to be with His people again. And in, in, indeed, this is, this is what Zechariah 14 tells us. The Lord will return to the Mount of Olives, the place from where His glory had left. Zechariah 14.4 says, On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. It's a promise of return. God is not done with His people. God is not done with us when, when we've been faithless, when we sin against Him, when we turn away from Him, but God is not done with us. You know, John's Gospel tells us that you know, this Jesus, he, He's the Word, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And when we see Jesus, we see the glory of God, the, the glory of God's only beloved Son. Right, so when Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, that's a fulfillment of Zechariah 14 verse 4. The glory has returned. The glory has come back. God has not abandoned His faithless people. Jesus is God come in the flesh, and, and God is faithful to His Word. He, He's faithful to save, even though we are unfaithful. Friends, uh, the, the passion story is a reminder to us that we can trust in this God. Although, ours, although we have been faithless, Even in this past week, we've turned away from Him. But God comes back. God comes back. God will never leave us nor forsake us if we are His people. Though we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. So so here in this story, Jesus sends two of His disciples ahead saying that they will find a colt in the village. So you have to untie it and bring it to Jesus. And sure enough, you know, they go to the village and and they find it just as Jesus had said. You know, the question is, how did Jesus know? You know, how how did Jesus know that there would be a coat tied right there? You know, there there are two possible explanations of what's happening here in our passage. One is that Jesus had arranged it ahead of time. Right, we don't know how he did it, but, but somehow he did it, and the owners of the coat were expecting his disciples, so they left the coat there ready for Jesus. So that's one possibility. The other explanation is that Jesus has perfect foreknowledge. Right? So he knew exactly what the disciples would find before they even entered the village. You know, he, he could see ahead of time, obviously, and, and he had arranged it sovereignly, that this is what would happen. He knew exactly what would happen. But, but either way, you know, re, whether it's the first explanation or the second one, I think Luke wants us to see that, that in all these events, leading up to Jerusalem, that Jesus is in control of all these events. There's nothing random or accidental that's happening as He draws nearer and nearer to the city. You know, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 right, that Jesus' death was according to God's plan. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So everything has been planned by Christ Himself. So so the disciples go into the city, they get the coat for Jesus, they put put their cloaks on the coat, and then Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the coat, fulfilling again what the prophet Zechariah said in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! Righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in, in this fulfilment of Zechariah 9, Jesus says that, you know, I am God's chosen King. I am the Messiah who comes to save in fulfilment of God's promises. Jesus is the King who fulfils God's promises. You know, notice Jesus in this passage in verse 30 says, he gives us this interesting detail about the colt. No one has ever yet sat on the colt. You see that little detail in verse 30. So in the Old Testament, the only animals that could be used for sacred purposes, so used in a temple or other means, are animals that have never been used before, right? Animals that no one has ever sat on before. So these are the animals that are set aside for sacred use, So that little detail in the text that no one has ever set on this cult tells us that this cult is being set aside for this sacred use. And what is that sacred use? It's to transport God's promised king into the city of Jerusalem. Again, it, it confirms the identity of Jesus. This is who he is. He's the coming king in fulfillment of God's word. So point number two, Jesus is the king who serves others. So as we think about Jesus as king, we need to ask the question, right, who, what kind of king is he? What kind of king is Jesus? There's a surprising twist in Zechariah's prophecy. So if you look at the, you look at Zechariah's prophecy, you know the, the promised king doesn't ride into Jerusalem in a way that you expect kings to ride into Jerusalem. Right? How would you expect? Uh, a triumphant king to ride in. You know, I mean, some people call this passage the triumphal entry. I think it says that on my Bible, you know, that subheading. Uh, but but I, I don't think it's actually triumphal in that sense. It's kind of triumphal entry. So the king doesn't come as, in the way we would expect. He doesn't come on a, a stallion, right? He doesn't come on a really impressive, majestic war horse, Right, you know, in our context, doesn't, he doesn't drive a fancy car. He doesn't show up in a in a branded car. He shows up in a unbranded car, whatever that may be. Okay, better not say the brand, <laughs> in case you own that car, right. So, so he, he, he comes up really humbly. He writes a, a colt, right? A colt is a beast of burden, right? Not something you ride into a war but something you write to get things done. It's a, it's a service animal, right? But think about it. You know, this, Jesus rides up in a colt. Why? Because it, it's carrying Jesus to a victory, a victory that's not won by earthly might, not, not won by earthly ability or human cleverness, but it's carrying Him to a victory that will be won by humble, self-giving Sacrifice. Jesus is the servant king who comes not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't conquer through power, worldly power, but he triumphs by giving himself in love and grace. Jesus did not come insisting on His own rights. Right? It would have been completely fine for Him to do that if, 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 there were, if there were anyone ever in human history that could insist on His own rights. It would have been Jesus. But He didn't come insisting on His rights, but He laid them aside. He laid His rights aside in order to serve others, in order to bless others. You know, as, as we know from Philippians chapter 2, He, he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God something to hold on to selfishly for his own gain. Right? He didn't use his divinity selfishly in order to serve himself, but he emptied himself. Right? He, he, he made himself nothing, of, of, of no account, in order to serve others. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. You know how how different from us, right? We 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 live in a world that keeps telling us, insist on our rights, assert yourself. Uh, if you don't say what if you don't say your mind, you you, you don't get hurt, you don't get served. How different from Jesus. So friends, are we walking in the way of the cross? Are we walking in this way? Are we are we willing to put aside our rights? Willing to put aside our opinions, our preferences. Are we willing to be slow to speak and quick to hear, quick to listen? Are we, are we willing to let love cover a multitude of offences? Because that's what it means to bear the cost of someone's sin, to, to not bring to account. Are we willing to, to be patient with, with those who hurt us, to, to suffer long, to suffer wrong? to endure, uh, to, to let go of grudges. Friends, Passion Week is a good time to think about how are we walking in the way of the cross in these ways. Following Jesus, Philippians tells us, means that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. You know, why would we do this? Why would we do these things? It doesn't make worldly sense. It's because we follow a king who comes on a coat? who comes to serve others. You know, some traditions practice foot washing on Thursday during Passion Week, right? So so they gather the people and, and they wash one another's feet. You know, something to think about. Now, I'm not calling us to literally wash one another's feet on Thursday because I think actually Jesus demands more of us than that. Jesus wants more from us than just the outward act of foot washing. Now, Jesus says in John 13, I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So so I think more more than the outward act of foot washing, I think Jesus wants even more from us. Jesus wants us to Move towards one another, to, to love one another with the same servant heartedness that He showed us. And that's what it truly means to wash one another's feet. So, so it's, it's very timely this week, Passion Week, to, to think about specific ways we can serve one another. You know, even now, you know, where you're sitting, think, think for a moment who can you serve? Is there someone in your life, someone in your family, one of your friends, someone in the church? Who can you serve? Who who can you encourage? Is is there someone you know you can give practical help to this week and beyond? Is is there someone that you could humble yourself before by asking for forgiveness? That's a form of servant-heartedness. Is there someone you know in your life whom you need to forgive? Whom you need to be reconciled with? Uh, seven-mindedness means that you, you, you're willing to bear the cost of their sin against you in order to extend mercy and forgiveness. Friends, th- this is why we have Passion Week. It's to remind ourselves of the suffering of Christ, so that we ourselves suffer with Him in, in these ways. You know, husbands, you might want to use this week to ask your wives, dear, how can I serve you better? <laughs> It'd be a dangerous questions for husbands to ask their wives, right? But friend, hus- but let me talk to the guys. You know, I think this could be good for us to do, So even go to our wives humbly and say, dear, you know, thank you for your, all that you've done. How can I serve you better this week? I'm not expecting the wives to do that because I, I trust the wives do a lot already. But maybe the guys, you know, ask your wife that. How can I serve you better? Not just this week, but in the, in the months and years to come. Third thing we learn about Jesus is Jesus is the king who dies. Point number three. So the crowd is excited to see Jesus entering Jerusalem because, you know why? Verse 37 tells us they had seen the mighty works that he had done, right? So, 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 so they've seen all the miracles, they've seen the amazing signs and wonders that Jesus has uh, done and, and they're expecting more they're expecting something big to happen, right? They're they're all excited, they're full of enthusiasm. What do they do? They they spread their cloaks on the road. Why do they do that? It's a sign of welcoming the king, right? You see that happening in the Old Testament. I think Jehu, when he goes up, they they spread cloaks on the path for him to walk on. It's a sign of uh, the king's welcome. And then they shout the words of Psalm 118 that we uh, saw earlier in the service. And, and, And Luke actually changes a bit of the wording Instead of blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Luke makes the point even stronger by saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how that psalm is quoted in our text. So so the crowds are expecting the king. He's going to arrive. Wow, he's going to do something great. This is it. The, The crowds recognize Jesus as king, but the question is, what kind of king? What kind of king... What were they expecting? You know, at that time, many Jews were hoping for a Messiah who would make the Jewish nation great again. They, they were looking for a strong political ruler, someone who could uh, kick out the Romans, establish a new kingdom centered on Jerusalem, with the Jews kind of reigning in victory over their Gentile enemies. I mean, that was the expectation that the Jews had. So some, when they saw Jesus, wow, this, this is our man, right? He's going to make us great again. They saw him as this kind of king. So, so when, when Jesus drew closer and closer to Jerusalem, the, the expectations of the crowd got higher and higher. You know, verse, verse 11 in chapter 19 tells us they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately right? because the king, was, the, the king that they had in mind was here. So, they had these ideas about Jesus. And, friends, wrong ideas about Jesus still persist today. You know, some think Jesus is just a wise, moral teacher. Some think Jesus is just a prophet. But, But all these people don't think that Jesus is the divine, eternal Son of God. You know, some think Jesus was a political rebel, like a political revolutionary. A social, a social justice campaigner who died because he was caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right? Some people think of Jesus that way. Now, th- these ways of thinking of Jesus are wrong, but, but that I want to put forward to us that there are also more subtle ways of misunderstanding Jesus, even by people who've been in the church for a long time. You know, some of us may be attracted to Jesus because we expect Him to simply meet our felt needs. You know, we, we like Jesus because we, we think Jesus exists to make us happy. We, we think Jesus exists to make us more successful. We, we think Jesus is here to just make us more comfortable, to, to make us healthier, to deal with our stress. Friends, are, are we actually looking for a king to rule over us? Or are we simply looking for a king to bless our desires, to give us what we want. You know, Maybe we want, we want Jesus to be our saviour, but not so much our Lord. And we want him to make our lives better, but we don't want him to change our lives. You know, what, what kind of king do we believe in? So along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus says, you know, not just once, but three times, the kind of king that he is. Right? He predicts what will happen to him in Jerusalem. He tells us that he's the king who suffers and dies, which completely confounds the expectations of the Jews. But, but listen to this. You, know, you look at those passages on, on the slide. Three, three times Jesus predicts his death. Right? The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, on the third day be raised. This is chapter 9, 21. 944, you know, let these words sink into your ears. Uh, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Uh, And chapter 18, 31 to 33, Jesus says to His disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise." You know, why why does Jesus have to keep saying this again and again? It's because the disciples, even the disciples don't get it. They they find it hard to believe that God's promised king is going to die. Right, right, they really struggle to, to grasp that, that this king suffers and dies. And Jesus is going to the cross in obedience to God the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. The Father did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And Jesus came to do His Father's will. and He obeyed to the point of death, even if it meant dying the most humiliating and painful of deaths on the cross. Now, why do we call Good Friday good? Why do we call Good Friday good? What can be good about remembering a horrific execution that happened 2,000 years ago to an innocent man? What can be good about that? We remember the cross because of what it accomplished. The cross itself is not good. It It was horrific. But we remember the cross because of what Jesus did through His death. He came to do His Father's will. He took God's judgment against sinners on himself so that sinners like us can be forgiven. No, he went to the cross to hang on the cross to bear our guilt and shame so that sinners like us, undeserving sinners like us, can be washed clean and brought back to God. That's why we call Good Friday good, friends. That's why we remember Passion Week year after year because we were reminded of this amazing sacrifice that this king has accomplished to save us. We, we follow a crucified king who, who invites us to join him on the way to the cross. I think maybe that's why we find it so hard to accept the fact that this king dies, because we understand the implications of following a king who dies. If, if we are followers of this king, then we are also called to die along with him, to follow him on the way to the cross. You know, this is countercultural, right? This is very, very countercultural. Because we live in a world, in a culture that that keeps telling us to have it our way. You can have your cake and eat it. You can make this life about you. We live in a consumer culture that takes pride in in meeting the needs of the consumer. We are king. But Jesus says, hey, no, wait a minute. No, no, you're not king. There's only one king. And this king calls you to die along with him. This king says to us in John 12, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So to follow Jesus, we, we, we must die to ourselves. You know, this, this doesn't mean that we physically harm ourselves. No, not at all. But rather what Jesus is saying, to die to ourselves means to, to die to our pride. to to die to our selfish desires, to die to our self-centeredness, our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness. This is what it means to take up our cross and to follow Jesus along the way. You know, I I love these two verses from 2 Corinthians 5. It says, the love of Christ controls us. That's what it means to really look to Jesus where, where His love for us compels us. Because we've experienced his love, therefore we're we compelled to live differently, to live the way of the cross because he has changed us, because he has saved us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So how are we living for the one who died for us in order that we may truly live? Finally, Jesus is the king who weeps. Jesus wasn't the king that the people were looking for, so they rejected him. Luke 19, if you just look up from our passage, in the earlier verses of this chapter, in Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable. In that parable, Jesus says in verse 12 and verse 14, he said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then sure enough, that parable was true. The, the, Jerusalem rejected him. This is not the kind of king that they were looking for. When Jesus saw Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, the location of God's temple, the place where God's glory was supposed to be displayed for all the world, what did Jesus do? He wept. He wept. Now, this, is only one, this is one of only two times in all four Gospels that mentions Jesus weeping. The only other time is in John 11 when his good friend Lazarus died. And the word weeping, you know, tells us Jesus is not having a quiet cry. It's not. It's not that word. The word weep, in the Greek, literally means to to wail. You ever heard wailing? Wail to to cry bitterly, to to lament. You know. You know. Sometimes you see images of of people in the Middle East who are mourning. They beat their breasts. They tear their clothes. They tear their hair. It's loud, right? That's the kind of weeping that Luke says Jesus is doing, that, that no holds barred lament. You know, you think, what, what could grieve Jesus in this way? What could move Him to this outpouring of sorrow? You know, some of us may be grieving over the bad choices made by a loved one. You know, some of us are grieving because we've, we've tried our best to persuade them but they've insisted on going ahead. You know, we we grieve because we we can see what's going to come. We can see the consequences of their actions. And it grieves us that they can't see it for themselves. And it grieves us that that they will have to suffer the consequences of their actions. I think that's the kind of sorrow that Luke tells us Jesus had. He he sees the hard-hearted sin of His people. And it grieves him because he knows the consequences of their rejection. He came to bring peace between God and man. And Jerusalem, whose name means peace, ironically rejected the things that make for peace. And because of this, Jesus warns of judgment. Verse 43 and 44, the city will be destroyed because they rejected the offer of peace. Jesus was a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. Friends, when we see our own sin, when we see the sins of others, the most Christ-like thing to do is not to ignore them, it's not to deny them, but the most Christ-like thing to do is to grieve over them, is to grieve and sorrow over our sins, is to lament. We grieve because our sin doesn't glorify God. We grieve because our sin spurns God's goodness. As we remember the suffering and death of Jesus during this week, let us not forget that it was our sins that nailed Him to the cross. It was our sins that Jesus was grieving over, that He wept. Friends, do we see also the compassion of Christ? Do you see His burden for the lost? In the same way, we we weep for those who have turned away from God. We we weep for those who are far from Him. Maybe this week, we want to especially pray for those we know in our lives who are far from God. Weep for them. Pray for them. Seek them out. And urge them to come to Christ. But we don't grieve hopelessly. You know, Earlier in Luke 19, you read this account of this man named Zacchaeus a sinful, corrupt tax collector who finds life, right? Who finds life. Why? Because he comes to Jesus. He humbles himself, climbs a tree, (laughs) comes to Jesus and is willing to turn from his sin and follow him along the way. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The good news of the gospel says, blessed are those who mourn For they shall be comforted. Godly grief is a good thing because it leads us to Jesus, the King who bears our grief and gives us true comfort and peace. So, friends, this Passion Week, let's look to Christ, let's turn to Him, and follow Him on the way. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we come to you now with quiet hearts. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus even more clearly. Father, we pray that you would help us to consider the the kind of king that he is and, and how we are to follow him along the way. Father, we pray that you would examine our hearts now. Help us to take this week as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday, As we prepare our hearts for Easter, Father, we pray that you would help us during this week to consider Christ, to to look to Him who for our sake died and was raised. Father, help help us to lay aside any sin that hinders us from knowing Jesus. Even now, we pray that you would search us. In In the quietness of our heart, we pray that you would reveal to us areas in our lives that displease You, areas in our lives that keep us from trusting in Your Son. And we pray that You would help us to turn away from these things. Father, we thank You so much for Jesus. We thank You that He indeed is the King who invites us to come to Him. So Father, we come humbly to You. We pray that You would help us Lavish your grace on us, Father, that we we pray that you would help us to know your Son more and more, that we would become more and more like Him, both individually as well as a people, as a church. Help us, Father, we pray. Be gracious and merciful to us.